I just want to linger there for a moment. Just give you all just space to, to give us space to just allow God to settle our hearts. Right now, if you just close your eyes and just talk to the Lord on your own. Confess ways in which our lives have not resembled those that would seek to worship God alone. To confess the ways in which our hearts are satisfied in things outside of God. He's a good God. He doesn't respond to our confession of sin with condemnation, but he responds to it with grace. So we can freely come to him. whose grace doesn't run out. We thank you that you are a father whose ears are always open to the cries of his people. We're thankful that our ugliness doesn't keep you away from us. We're grateful that our brokenness doesn't intimidate you by any means, Lord. In fact, you are so loving that you desire to enter into that very brokenness and bring healing. Father, we thank you that we can, that we have found ourselves here today, even though we may have had feelings of not wanting to be here. That just means that you have something in store for us. Father, would you give us expectant hearts? Father, would we not be, as the word said, those that simply sing another song, those that simply recite another prayer, but Father, would you produce desires in us to want to hear from you? to want to encounter you, to want to be changed by you, to want to know you and see you just a little bit more clear. Father, that is our prayer. That is our desire this morning. And if we find ourselves in a place where that isn't our desire, Father, would you intervene right now? Would you make us have that desire, Lord? And will we give you all the glory and all the praise and all the honor that you deserve. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, I'm going to ask you to remain standing because we're going to get right into a reading of God's word. Uh, but my name is Richard, one of the pastors here, and it is a joy um, to be with you all. Um, just to catch everybody up to speed, for the last about eight weeks or so, we've been in a series called Defining the Relationship. And that series has really just been an attempt to help us as God's people uh, navigate through the brokenness that, our, that we see in our world by having a biblical framework and worldview of what God requires and uh, is asking of his people. And so today uh, we get to talk about conflict. And I expected it to be quiet because conflict is one of those things, right? Uh, many of us have experienced the effects of unreconciled conflict. We've experienced the effects of not wanting to handle conflict, and so it's not necessarily a popular subject, but I think that God uh, in his providence has brought together a people from all different walks of life, 
all different backgrounds, and it would be naive of us to think that when God brings a family together that there's not going to be conflict at times. And the goal and the um, uh, desire of God is not that we don't have conflict, but that we know how to navigate it properly, right? That we know how to do it in such a way that would honor him. And so today we find ourselves in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. We'll be in verses Matthew, or be in verses 21 through 24. And it reads as follows. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister without cause will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. And whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. And all the church said, amen. You all may be seated. In the late 1980s and early 90s, a sitcom called Different World had two characters in it by the names of Whitley and Dwayne. Yes, they did. And in this sitcom, there was a familiar scene where Whitley um, alludes to having been at beef with Dwayne and is talking to all her girlfriends about how she had Dwayne wrapped around her finger. I won't do the Whitley voice, but um, it, it went so much as to say that I'll have this man wrapped around my finger and he's going to show up and do exactly what I want him to do. And unbeknownst to her, Dwayne would show up and in Dwayne's most smooth and eloquence of speech, pulls Whitley aside from her friends and says, baby, the infamous baby, I'm not okay about how things went on last night that I can live without furniture, but I can't live without you. And so baby, uh, uh, what we're gonna do is I need you to come with me and we're gonna make this right. To which Whitley, after having sass and attitude in front of her friends, responds with that, bye y'all, and immediately follows her husband to repair the relationship. I use that as example rather casually, but as an example of the importance of reconciliation within the body of Christ. There's so much conflict in the world, and depending on your upbringing or your experiences of relationship, I'm sure that you have experienced conflict maybe in the setting of friendships, in the setting of marriage, in the setting even of uh, this particular church. And some of us still, we wear the scars of lost friendship, broken marriages that ended in divorce, uh, estranged children uh, that parents grieve the loss of really by no explanation other than there was a fracture that seemed not to be able to be repaired. And all of these things aren't because of conflict, but are because of the reality that conflict went bad. Today, I don't really have much time to explore all the nuances around conflict, but what I believe that the Lord has led, uh, led me to um, address in our church family it's not simply the how-tos of how to handle conflict, but to address the heart behind conflict that leads to it going bad. 
You see, the reality is that James points to us as he tells us that uh, the source of our quarrels really has nothing to do with other people, but has to do all of what's going on in our hearts. Uh, We desire things, and when we don't get it, we want to lash out and attack. And so the result is that we tend to point fingers out there rather than using those very same fingers to pluck out something in our own lives. Here are a few things that I want to ask from you today. That as we engage in this time to worship, I want you to do three things. The first thing is I want to ask, I want you to ask the Lord to give you an ear to hear. I don't expect this to be a sermon where I get a lot of shouts and amens. Because when you're going under surgery, it doesn't feel good. But the reality is that the only way that we can experience health is if we allow the physician, the great physician, to do work that may seem painful right now, but will lead to greater health in the future. We need his help to let us hear what he has for us to hear. But secondly, I want to ask you to pray this prayer with me. You don't have to pray it out loud, but just to internally ask God to do this one thing to bring to remembrance relationships that are broken or have been fractured that God desires for us to seek repair of. To bring to mind relationships that have been broken that we may have dismissed or removed ourselves from that God may, God would have for us to take a step towards and not a step away from. I do want to qualify that statement with this, that there are some relationships that need to remain broken. There are some relationships that need to remain broken because they've been a source of nothing but harm and hurt towards us. Abuse has been a part of that relationship. And so by no means is God calling you to go and to reconcile with your abuser. That's not what this text is about. But this text is about Christians and how Christians are to interact with one another. That God is elevating the standard of how we are to approach conflict in relationships with one another. And that is who I'm wanting us to ask God to reveal to us today, who do we need to seek repair in relationship with? And then lastly, I want y'all to, I want us to ask the Lord, what would, he, what, what, what would he have for us to do to make that relationship right? It's important for you and I to realize that the standard of scripture is not that we can fix every relationship, no. The Bible tells us that we need to do as much as we can to fix the relationship. So today, my point is very simple and brief, and it is this, that God uses conflict in our lives to reveal what's in us and to remove anything that's hindering us from our relationship with him. Let me say that again. That God uses conflict in our lives to reveal what's going on inside of us. But then he also uses it to remove any hindrances or barriers that will hinder our relationship with him. The text opens up with this. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Here we see the beginning of one of Jesus' most famous sermons called the Sermon on the Mount. And if you know a little bit about the Sermon on the Mount, then you know that the first 13 or so verses, or 3 through 12, are God giving these beatitudes to his disciples and showing them that they are the new uh, children of God, that they are the new Israel. And that what God desires from them is that um, he desires for them to rest in the blessings that he has for his people. But then 13 through 16, he is giving them this newfound identity 
of who they are to be in the world as salt and light. That they are to be people who live out the moral standards identified based on what God has said and not what anyone else has said. But then 17 through 20, he affirms both the inspiration of the Old Testament, but the righteous requirement of God that his disciples shall not just obey the big commands, but the little ones as well. That they are to live lives of moral purity and to live lives of righteousness according to his teaching. But the bookend of that particular section in verse 20 um, it's not just a bookend, but it's a pivot into what God would have for us to do. That verse in 20, he says that, but for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, today I want us to pause for a moment and accept the reality that before God is going to address our conflicts, he's going to address our hearts. Uh, this distinction here between the disciples and the Pharisees and scribes is intended for us to do an evaluation of our lives. It's intended for us to see what form of righteousness is both right and acceptable in God's sight and what form of righteousness is detestable in his sight. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is the, the, the distinction between religion and discipleship. The sixth commandment here um, is, uh, the, his use of the sixth commandment here in explanation is really, a, uh, is really meant to inform the disciples that though the scribes and Pharisees were the influencers in the land, though the scribes and Pharisees were the one who had the education and the accomplishments and the achievements, though they were the ones who were determining and dictating what should be taught about God to the rest of the world or to the people of Israel, God says they have one flaw. Their flaw was what they had begun to do is take a commandment of God given to Moses in the book of Exodus, verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 13, thou shall not murder, and they, they merged it and combined it with a later command given in the book of Numbers that said, and whoever murders will be subject of judgment. What they did was they took the significance of the law and they reduced it to it being only applied to actual murder as a means of only allowing God to address their external behaviors and not their own hearts. But not only did they do that, they went further to reduce the violations of the law to specifically being about murder so that they could establish a righteousness of their own and be resistant to submitting to the righteousness of the holy God. What we're seeing right here is that they were ones who were looking for street strict legal corrections of behavior, but Jesus was looking for love. And before we go on looking at them with side eyes and acting like, man, I can't believe they did that, how many of us do the same thing? How many of us um, look outside of Jesus for justification when we find ourselves face to face with conflict? Uh, I didn't get enough amens on that. The way that we know that we do this is because when we've come face to face or come at odds with someone, uh, oftentimes we respond with self-righteousness. Uh, we respond with this looking downward on people as if their offense towards us was greater than our offense towards them. Or even, let's go one step further, we look down on them as if their offense was towards us was greater than the ongoing offenses that we've made against God day in and day out. That allows us to 
instead of pausing when we rest in, or we, when we uh, experience conflict and looking up at the holiness of our God and the righteousness of our Lord. First, what we, without doing that, that allows us to not be able to look eye to eye with sinners that are in need of the same grace that we are. Uh, pride is deceitful. Um, and I think especially in conflict, uh, pride puffs up in a way where uh, we are unwilling to just sit still and say, God, I want you to do an inspection on me before I point my finger and blame towards them. Uh, it's deceitful because um, I, I think that when we find ourselves in hard and difficult situations, pride could lead us to withdraw from the very people that God placed in our life to love on. Uh, we begin to look at a person who stands in between what we really want as an enemy versus a brother and sister in Christ. But not only do we find ourselves being self-righteous, I think we find ourselves guilty of what they did, the Pharisees and, and scribes are doing as well, which is that we find ourselves being resistant to God actually using the situation to produce righteousness within us. Uh, what do I mean by this? I'm glad you asked. The standards of God's righteousness when we come face to face with it is frightening. Uh, when I just took some time and just, just read this, these four verses over and over and over again, y'all, I had to pray and ask God to help me look at this with fresh eyes. Sometimes when you have read a verse so long, you think that you fully understand it completely, and so your eyes can kind of glaze over what Jesus is actually wanting to communicate right here. But if you heard these words of God dealing with anger within the heart and the consequences of it, to be unmoved by that may be symptom that our hearts are really hardened towards God. There's no way that you can look at the unrighteousness that sometimes, that, that often is going on inside of us and not be grieved at the reality that these are the very things that Jesus Christ had to die for. That these are the very things that God had to send his son, Jesus Christ, to be hung on a cross, to be buried in a grave, and then therefore resurrected in new life, all because of the wickedness inside you and I. That this is the bad news of the gospel. The bad news of the gospel is that we all are sinners. That we all in our sin, not from our bad choices, but by our inherent nature, have offended a holy and perfect God. And as Jesus looks at our lives, he's not looking at the fact that you didn't commit murder and therefore you're good in his eyes. He's not looking at the fact that you didn't lie yesterday, but you lied this morning and somehow your behavior to and from is the conditions or requirements for his own acceptance. What Jesus is saying that there is nothing that you could do that would be good enough to earn my favor and acceptance. And that's why I had to die for you. I had to send somebody who was perfectly righteous because you could not ever be righteous even on your best day. I had to provide something for you that you couldn't earn in and of yourself. Jesus says that anger is the equivalent of murder, but he doesn't just stop there. He goes through the characteristics or the, what our anger has earned us. He says that if you're angry at a brother for no just cause, then you are subject to judgment. That doesn't hit us today because most of us haven't been locked up, right? But the reality of, as he goes and talks about anger and insulting 
and calling someone a fool, and he lists the consequences of those things, subject to judgment, subject to the court, subject to hellfire. What he's pointing at is the reality that in Jewish times, when they heard those particular statements, they would have understood exactly what the severity of the consequences of those actions deserved. That they had courts that were meant to take on some of the harshest and rulest crimes. And it was those very courts that if a person was found guilty, they would be stoned to death. They had other courts called the Sanhedrin, that if a person was to be found guilty of the crime that they came before the Sanhedrin council, that they could be guilty of beheading. That they had courts, this uh, reference to subject to hellfire is mention of, the, of a place called the Valley of Hanan. And it was in that very valley where pagan worship took place, where they would take their very own children and burn them alive and sacrifice them to their gods. In that very valley, even the people who weren't believers designated that place as a place to be destroyed. And so what they would do is they would take all the trash in the land and they would set it on fire. And that place would burn and burn and burn so that when the consequences that are mentioned here that Jesus is referring to, he's indicating that it was such a grotesque crime to speak the words fool over a brother or sister in Christ that what they were deserving of was to be burned alive. This isn't the popular or sexy sayings of Jesus that we like to hear in church. This is the side of Jesus where God is showing his righteousness, but he's showing the righteousness that is what we call the retributive righteousness of God. It's the aspect of God that he is just in punishing sin. And if you only think of God's righteousness uh, being held alongside his love, then you're missing out on the fullness of who Jesus is. That Jesus is not just about displaying love and overlooking your sin. God can't overlook our sin because that would make him an unjust God. That the mere reality that God is explaining to us the severity of our sin is to show us our great need for saving. Who can read this and say, I'm not guilty of this? We can look at our Twitter feeds and our Instagram pages and our conversations with one another, and we've said and done far worse, haven't we? And yet Jesus right here is unearthing the gross depravity in people and saying that it's not enough to measure yourself up to the letter of the law, but you've gotta be aware of the scope of the law as well. That this scope goes far and it goes wide, that it, 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 it's so broad that it eliminates any excuse from us to stand before God and give him the reason, well, God, I just didn't know. God, I just, I didn't do that, but I did this. So can we just overlook it? It's not as big of a deal. God is saying, no, I am God. And in my righteousness, I have to punish and deal with sin. Uh, the reality for you and I is that as you get closer to Jesus, as you walk with him longer, you begin to become grossly aware of how sinful you really are. You begin to, you would think it would be the opposite, that I would be able to find confidence in, man, I don't really do what I used to do, 
I don't curse no more. I don't get drunk no more. I'm not getting high no more. I'm not beating people up no more. So I'm good. But as you get closer closer to God and you begin to see how just holy and righteous he is, you begin to see how unrighteous and sinful and need for saving you are. This is not something to hear and simply allow the weight of this text to crush us. This is really intended to start to stir up gratitude and worship in us, to be grateful that God saved us. Sometimes our lack of gratitude that we have towards God and that we even extend to one another is because we haven't really come into understanding of the grace and uh, the grace and forgiveness that we have received ourselves. It's easy to tell somebody you've forgiven them. It's a whole nother thing to live in light of that forgiveness towards someone who may never offer you forgiveness in return. The supernatural reality of the church is that we are not those who are called to cut people off because they disappoint us or harm us, sometimes unintentionally. We are to be those who make steps towards repair in such a way to where that person in receiving the kindness and generosity from us may be the very means and tool to heal the toxic traits that they have in their life because of their own brokenness and upbringing. Uh, I I wanna spend some time right there. I wanna spend some time right there because I believe my fear for the church today is that we've allowed culture to seep into the walls of the church. And by walls, I'm not talking about this building, I'm talking about our hearts. That as the culture deems people worthy or not based off of how, how much they agree with popular thought, as the culture will tell somebody that they need to be canceled because of something that they did 10 years prior, as if, I, if our worst acts and behaviors were put on a public screen, would we not too be canceled? That a culture who will label somebody as toxic not because they actually have toxic qualities alone, but because they have different perspectives and views that we are unwilling to make ourselves uncomfortable with, that we withdraw from them and cancel them instead of coming close to them and actually taking the time to say, man, I wanna understand where you're coming from a little bit better. How, How has the church, how have we, Cornerstone, become comfortable with disassociating with people on the basis of their worst past mistakes. Anger can be disguised in a lot of different forms. Back in the day when we were small, it was a lot harder to hide when we got into conflict with one another. Because there were people around that would see, oh, we're out to lunch and Y'all used to be cool, but you sitting on that side of the table and you sitting on that side of the table and y'all ain't speaking to each other. Then there were people who could witness that and step in and say, hey, something's off, y'all. Let's, let's work this out. What's going on? But now in our church, our size, and in a, church, in a time of the life of the church where we're comfortable just coming to church a couple times a month, we can avoid and hide from the responsibility that we have to actually repair relationships rather than leave them broken. Um, I I think we need to do some real hard examination in our own hearts that would allow us to adopt a way of relating with one another that isn't righteous and isn't godly. And I say it's not righteous and godly 
because that's not, how the, that's not the way that Jesus interacts and relates with you and I. At one point in our times or in our walks of Jesus, has Jesus said you're canceled because you keep doing the same sin over and over and over again? At what time has Jesus said you no longer can partake in fellowship with me because of the hard and difficult and ugly ways that you continue to worship other gods instead of worshiping me? If Jesus doesn't treat us like that, what would make us think it's okay to treat one another like that? He, but let's keep going. Let's keep going. Verses 23. Jesus goes from not so much dealing with, well, first dealing with our hearts. First, reminding us of our great need for him, our need for saving day in and day out. But then he says, not only do I want to deal with your heart, I want you to understand that unresolved conflict can hinder your worship. He says this, he says, uh, so if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Uh, what another distinction of the people of God uh, based on God's intentions for us is that we prioritize um, uh, reconciliation of relationships more than we prioritize participation in worship services. Uh, there's a re there's a or there's a temptation for us, I think, that because we allow conflict to be something that causes fear within us, and it's legitimate fear, because some of the reasons why we don't want to handle conflict is because we fear being rejected by that person, we fear being labeled or being gossiped about. We fear that person not being one or not being desiring or committed to loving us in spite of the ways that they may have treated us. And so that fear though is, is, is not meant to cripple us and keep us from just acting like things are okay instead of actually handling a problem that God takes extremely seriously. He says that when you're coming to present your offering, when you're coming to bring your gift to the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, uh, leave your gift and go to them. Um, you know that the Holy Spirit is working with, in your life. When, as you're going about doing spiritual things, there's this unsettling and uh, lack of peace within your heart in knowing that there was a relationship that at one point in time was important to you and now no longer is. And I'm not talking, again, I'm not talking about harmful and destructive relationships. I'm just talking about homegirl used to be your best friend and now she's not. Homeboy used to be your partner and now she's not, and now he's not. And y'all still are in the same covenant family. But you want to teach Bible studies. But you want to be on stage singing. But you want to come and give, still give, 10% of your gifts. You want to come and still do all of the same religious exercises that you think are going to be pleasing and acceptable to God while ignoring the reality that there's beef that needs to be squashed. Uh, Jesus is saying right here that um, um, the sacrifice that the Jews, uh, that would come to mind for the Jews right here was not one, not an obligatory one, 
but a voluntary one expressing devotion or thanksgiving and a desire to draw near to God. Um, church is messy, y'all. Let me say that again. Church is messy. And community is hard. And when you covenant with a family of people that you didn't know beforehand, as you're getting to know them, there are going to be some things that come up that you may not like. There are going to be some things said that may be interpreted through the lenses of your own brokenness or past experiences that you now project on that person as if they did something to you in harm, which was really, really just a triggering point in your own life that has been unhealed and undealt with. He says that there's, we've got to see that more than just religious activity, God is about mended relationships. More than just our external works, God is desiring from us to be people who are able to extend the grace and mercy towards one another that we in turn have received from him. Uh, notice here that Jesus is not presuming guilt on anyone. He's simply highlighting that if you have even an awareness that there might be a problem, it's your responsibility to take steps towards it and fix it. Uh, this is where selfishness gets exposed. Because one of the things that I've been guilty of myself is that in entering into a conversation of reconciliation, I may leave the conversation feeling good. I may leave the conversation feeling like, man, I said everything that I needed to say, and therefore, whew, weight off my shoulders, I'm good. But then in the days and weeks to come, I notice that things don't seem to be good. And instead of going back and saying, you know what, I probably need to have another conversation, let me be a, um, a vehicle of grace to this individual and allow God to use me in participation with what he wants to do in both of our lives. If you only see conflict as something God wants to do in other people and not yourself, you're the problem. Matthew 7, Jesus is very clear in talking about conflict. He says that if you, uh, if you practice the uh, plank um, in your eye versus the speck in somebody else's ministry, uh, that you've missed it. That in any conflict, if you approach the conflict and never do any inspection of yourself to say, you know what, what might I have contributed to this problem that I can confess and admit, man, you know what, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Then you're actually not giving room for the Holy Spirit to humble you in the process of healing someone else. We, this is a team sport, y'all. And I, I, I've, I've really found it unlikely and implausible that in conflicts between friends or people, that there's nothing that both people can say, you know what, I could have done this better. You know what, I didn't love you as well as I could have. You know what, I just wanna own my own stuff and I don't wanna point at you and say that if you had just done this differently, then all would be okay. This is what Jesus is saying, he's saying that we've got to come face to face, not with what other people are doing to us. We've got to come face to face with what we may have done to other people. We've got to be committed to be the peacemakers that he mentioned in the Beatitudes, the ones who pursue peace and pursue unity in the church. Y'all, I'm going to be honest. Gossip can spread like wildfire. Jesus is very clear 
in Matthew 18, that the way to handle conflict with one another is that if your brother has sinned against you, then you are to go to them in private and you are to give them opportunity to repent. And if you do so, and they do repent, then you have won a brother. But if the first person you go to when you've been offended is someone other than them, then you are gossiping. And your gossip can be used by Satan to spread an unfair picture of that other person that God calls your brother and sister in such a harmful way that now the body of Christ operates from a place of suspicion rather than a place of trust. There is no harmlessness in gossip. Just because that person didn't hear you say it doesn't mean they won't experience the impact of what you've said about them, maybe in subconscious or suspicious or, or, or subtle ways. We've got to start being, we got to start being real, y'all. We got to start being real about, look, as a pastor, things come to our table. You may think that you're just saying that to your homie, but somehow a telephone took place and it went from that person to that person to that person and landed at our table. And this ain't even just about us. This is about some of y'all. That's some of y'all business that could have been dealt with one-on-one -on -one, somehow made it to the streets. And now other people are coming to us talking about your business instead of you coming to us talking about your own business. Jesus is saying that the church is to be different. The church is to not just view God as righteous, but it's called to actually be righteous themselves. But the, the, the difficulty in all of this is that we've been hurt. We've been hurt. And we're frightened that somehow if we take that hurt from, to God, that God's going to hurt us as well. Sometimes the first conflict that you and I need to deal with is not our conflict with other people, but it's just our conflict with God. I don't know about y'all, but I've been in process of working through health in this area. And I wish I could stand up here and say, man, you know what, man, I'm, I do this perfectly all the time. And the reality is I don't. That a lot of times conflict is a triggering point for me. That it's a, it's a thing that reminds me of abandonment. It reminds me of being unworthy of love. It reminds me of rejection. It reminds me of not being good enough. And so it's easier to retreat from it than to rest in what God has said about me. And, and isn't that our journey? That we, we sometimes find ourselves caring more about the opinions or thoughts that people have about us than what God has said about us. And that's the good news of the gospel. That despite your brokenness, despite what has happened to you, despite the, the need for you to be broken and just be provided space to say, I'm in process. I need healing too. I'm a person just like you. I'm not, I'm in need of saving every day and every moment. We don't allow, we allow that for some people, but we don't allow that for other people. How does God's people become a place of safety for the most unlovable people in the world. But when they come to the people of God, they experience supernatural love. 
and that be the tool that God uses for the very first time. Unlovable people are the ones craving love the most. God is saying that my desire for y'all is to not just shuck and jive and come here and lift hands in the, in the air and sing these songs, but to live at uh, live with animosity towards your brothers and sisters. It's not meant for you to label people toxic just because you want to abdicate your responsibility of loving them. It's not meant for us to look down on people, but to lift people up. It, it, it should be named among us, y'all. Jesus is very clear that if we want to say that we're his disciples, that we will be known for our love for one another. And I'm not saying that that's easy. I think the scriptures are just simply telling us that God, that the sacrifice that God delights in most, is not that we would eliminate everything else, but that we would just prioritize mending and fixing and fighting for unity in the family of faith more than we would just simply going about religious activity. The health of this church isn't going to be seen in how many people sit in these seats on a Sunday morning. The health of this church is going to be seen through the real experiences that people have when they enter into our family, when they become a part of our family and make a covenant with one another, that the actual things that we recite in our membership meetings are things that we actually live out day to day. But our hope in the midst of such heaviness that the law that Jesus is expounding upon is heavy. It is crushing because we all fall short. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus perfectly satisfied the law, that he lived the perfect life, that he died a death not for the things that he did, but for the things that you and I did. And that because of that, we can look at him as the righteous one who has never spoken a word over you intended, intended for your harm, who has never insulted you or had in his heart any desire to harm you or destroy you, who was the very same one who stood or was hung on the cross. He was the one who has people through insults and called him foolish for dying for something that he did not himself do. He was the one that said, Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It is Jesus who stood in our place, got what we deserved. And yet, instead of abandoning the disciples who in his moment of need said, bruh, I'm out. Jesus rose from the dead and it says he appeared to them multiple times. He came close to them multiple times. He went to Peter and said, Peter, the very same one who had denied him three times. And he said, Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, Peter, feed my sheep. That should signal to you and I, y'all, that there ain't nothing that you've done, done so bad or no experience that you've gone through so harmful that in the hands of Jesus, he can't heal and restore. If he can restore the disciple who betrayed him to be the cornerstone or the pillar, a pillar in the church, how much more can he destroy that fractured friendship between brother and sister, mother and father, sister and brother, child and son, whatever it is, put the name a category. 
in the hands of Jesus, he can fix it. Jesus is our only hope. He's the one that says your righteousness is not dependent upon what you do, but off what I've done for you. So we can no longer retreat. We can no longer withdraw, but we can rest. Isn't that the place that we all want to be? Able to just rest and say, God, I've tried to control it long enough. God, I've tried to fix it on my own long enough. God, I've tried and tried and tried and I'm tired. But we can say, you know what, today, Jesus, I want to give this to you. And I want to be able to rest in the reality that it is better in your hands than it is in mine. It is better in your hands than it is in mine. As we close, I want to leave you with simple reminders. And I know a sermon like this, we're probably expecting the one, two, threes. How do we handle? Y'all, like, there'll be more time for that. What I want for us as a church is to do those three things. Ask God, help me to hear even when it's hard. God, help me to be reminded of someone that I need to go and take steps towards and no longer take steps away from. And lastly, God, help me know what are the steps that I can do to make this right. And what would our church look like if we took those very three things seriously and said today, I'm not gonna allow any lies that go to my head concerned about how they're gonna respond or what they're gonna say, or are they gonna pick up my phone call? I ain't gonna allow the enemy to put none of them lies in my head. What I'm gonna say is, God, I'm convinced that you desire this so much that you'll make a way to soften hard hearts in order to repair what you desire to be fixed. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for that we can have experienced grace, that we have experienced your mercy not just in theoretical senses, but experiential ones. Father, I pray that we would be a people that behold your righteousness so much that we desire to be like you more than anything in the world. Father, would you give us the strength and ability and courage to take the necessary steps needed to repair that which may have been broken for years and years and years and years. Father, what we do and be obedient to your scripture, it says as much as it can be done or much as it depends upon you, that we would be people who pursue peace and pursue unity above all else. Father, we need your spirit to move us towards this. We need your spirit to empower us. And so I pray that we would surrender to you, that we would allow you to use conflict as a means of producing righteousness in us. And, a, and as a vehicle of being a part of somebody else's sanctification process and becoming more like you. Father, we're grateful. We love you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.